Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Rennebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health. I am your host, Todd Rennebaum. Got another wonderful episode for you today. Uh, I talked to a young lady named Cassie and she lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Eh? And she is a mental health uh, counselor and a, an addictions counselor. And she has her own mental health kind of disorders as well. And she had a major mental breakdown at work one day so uh we're going to talk about her past and how she kind of got to where she is today and and how she's doing now but first i'd like to read a little ditty that was written by jc don i won't say her last name i won't say people's last names uh just in case um but this was on facebook and she was referring to last week's episode with uh trash who has did or disassociative identity disorder She says, just when I thought I knew it all, I learned something new. Take a listen to this episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health with Todd Rennebaum as the host. Mind-blowing to say the least. She was talking about the episode, not me, I think. Uh, And then she shared the episode. So thank you very much, JC, for that. Uh, Plus today, just today, I had the lovely Tracy and the lovely Bev stop me and tell me what what a great episode that was as well. So thank you so much again, Trash. For, for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, it's it's apparently a very popular episode, so thank you again. Now, if you're listening to an episode and you'd like to leave a comment or a question or a concern, you can find the podcast on Facebook at Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, Instagram, Bunny Hugs Podcast, and TikTok, Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, I think. If that doesn't work, then try Bunny Hugs Podcast. And if you're listening again, don't forget to rate and review bunny hugs and mental health on itunes now before i introduce cassie i would just like to talk about the upcoming episodes uh i've I've talked to a lot of really great people in the last little while here so uh next week i am speaking with bill he's from australia and he is the coffin confessor uh that's actually his job people pay him on their deathbeds to crash their funeral and say things to people that uh, they've wanted to say for years or to put something in their coffin or uh, to go to their house and kind of wipe their hard drives on their computer. Uh, so yeah, he, he gets hired by people on their deathbeds to do stuff. But he also just wrote a book called Coffin Confessor and he talks a lot about, uh, he, he had a rough go at life uh, in his early years. Uh, including uh, not knowing his father very well at all, but his father was one of Australia's uh, biggest gangsters and hitmen. So uh, that's a very interesting conversation. Uh, I also talked to two people called, well, not they're not called this, but this is their names, Jimmy and Charnay. If they sound familiar at all, they are on the very popular Netflix television show, Love on the Spectrum. Uh, they were married on the show 
uh, on the second season. They're, they are also from Australia. A lot of people are watching the American season, but th- there was a couple seasons before that, and they're just as good. So check them out on Netflix. I also spoke with a lovely young lady named Tessa, and she is diagnosed with narcissism. And so we talk about that. We talk about a little bit about her early years, but also just the stigma behind cluster bees in general, especially narcissism. Uh, I also spoke with Angelica. Uh, she is a mental health podcaster, and her mental health podcast is Revolutionized Mind. And she at one time was a high-level uh, athlete, played soccer, and we talk about the stresses with that and injuries and and uh there's a lot of really cool people coming up so keep listening okay but now for this week i have cassie and i've basically already introduced her so i will just say without further ado i give you cassie i am a 34 year old uh, mental health and addictions counselor working in saskatoon i work in harm reduction at the moment which is my biggest passion um and yeah i don't know i i just want to talk about like being a mental health professional who lives with um, mental health disorders and had a mental breakdown at work <laughs> yay um i i think you know like when i first started uh, working in the field, which is just about a year ago, I guess. Um, I started struggling with imposter syndrome, like really badly. It was being like, what am I doing here? Oh no, I don't know if I should be here. I should probably be a client. Like, what is this? They're all going to figure out that I'm insane. Um, and totally incapable. And this was kind of like the background dialogue in my head for months and you know it was kind of an internal argument in my head of being like no you're okay you're going to therapy you're doing your thing you're gonna be all right we're gonna get through it it's it's gonna be good you can help people you know so yeah that that was kind of just an overwhelming daily experience and I I just looked around and I just saw all of these like very capable professionals who were like they had their shit together and even if they were like yeah, I understand what it's like to be in recovery. I understand what it's like to, you know, have mental illness and this and that. Um, They just seem so put together and just so okay. And that was not the experience that I was always having. Um, So I started to feel like maybe I'm just more unhinged than everyone else. Hmm. Um, But all all these other people, they've been in the field for a while? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So sure. they they may have had the same imposter syndrome their first totally. six months. Yeah. yeah. And like, I'd be the first to tell anyone like, okay, how people appear on the outside is not necessarily indicative of what's actually going on for them, right? Like we all have our battles and our struggles, but... But yeah, I just, I just got really stuck on this idea that like, no, oh, maybe maybe I'm just less okay than everyone else, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, did you ever have your own therapy session and then like the next day give the same advice <laughs> <laughs> you know, that you were yes. just given? To, yeah. <laughs> like all the time, all the time. And like one of my friends is a psychiatrist and we joke about how like, you know, we are our own worst 
patients or clients, you know, like (laughs) we're just like, yes, you should. Yeah. Well, you know, I try to stay away from saying you should do this, but, um, you know, make a plan with, with a client or a patient around like, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. And then go home and be like, that should also be my plan, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even having the podcast (laughs) and being an advocate, people reach out to me and yeah, I'm great at giving advice. I'm terrible at taking my own. Yeah. Yeah. It's like human condition, you know? Yeah, I think so. It's like the mechanic that drives a crappy car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I got started with bad hair, you know? (laughs) So what what made you want to get into uh, this field in the first place? Yeah. So like, you know, I had a pretty chaotic upbringing. And so that was very inspiring for this field of work. And, um, I just started to feel really hopeless, like in my, in my adult years, you know, just looking at the state of my family and how things had kind of fallen apart. And, um, I was just filled with like this, yeah, this feeling of hopelessness and what kind of was desperate to like, kind of figure out, okay, how do I turn this into something better? Um, and so I think I kind of thought, well, okay, if I learn enough, about mental health and addictions, then I can maybe help myself. And then if I can help myself, then maybe um, I could help other people. And then that could turn this hopelessness that I feel into hope and create more hope for others. And it's just a win, 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 right? Um, And in my mind, it was very clear, like I had this clear plan of how this would work, right? but life's never that simple. And, and it's just not that linear, right? Like healing is not that linear. So, yeah. Well, it's funny that you went into mental health education to try to help yourself. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like, if I'm going to pay for a therapist, I don't want to pay for a therapist and schooling. <laughs> yeah. I'll just do the schooling and be my own therapist as I'm going to school. Well, you know, I, I went to therapy for years as well, and I still oh. do. Um, but I have to say though, too, it found it took me a long time to find the right types of therapy for me. And then the right therapist was w- within that therapy. Um, that kind of, yeah, just like fit my, you know, unique needs. We're all like, you know, unique people and we got to find a good fit for us. And yeah, I went to therapy for years without it having like a huge impact on me. And I think it's because I intellectualize a lot. So I would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I read that. And that's how I went about my career as well is like, you know, thirsty for knowledge and degrade in school and continue to read and learn and do all these things. But it's different to apply it, especially with trauma, I feel like, because a lot of what a person's experiencing in complex post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder is happening in the body and in the nervous system, right? So all that knowledge wasn't really um, making like huge changes. It, it was definitely helpful, you know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't the end all be all. Right. I, some of that stuff I find is like you're treating a symptom and not the main factor sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like, which is great. I mean, it's great. You got these tools to help you through the symptoms, but sometimes you need to really dive a little deeper and really get into the juicy bits of why the trauma is causing this, you know, reaction in your body and stuff. So 
but I'm no professional at all. But, but I find the same thing. It's like some therapies, it's like, it just sounds, some of it sounds silly to me. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. I'm not doing that, but yeah. yeah. And, and then, like you said, then within that type of therapy, then you have to find the right therapist and, yeah. and, and that's tough to do, especially when there's already wait, waiting lists and, and, you know, yeah things aren't cheap and yeah. yeah. And it, it really took, uh, yeah, like a huge part of it is like, you know, privilege and, and where you're at, like what you can afford and what you have access to, um, which I think is just such a crime. Like, I think that it should be, you know, um, basic um, human rights that we all have access to whatever kind of therapy that we specifically need. Um, and so, yeah, until I started working in the field and then I had benefits and I was making more money. Um, I couldn't until then I, I couldn't afford to really explore some of those trauma specific therapies because they're really expensive. Like who can afford $150 an hour? Do you mind me asking what you've been diagnosed with and what caused some of the PTSD and stuff? Yeah. So, okay. So I'll start with like, you know, what kind of caused all of, well, you know, I, I've been diagnosed with PTSD and, um, but I recognize myself as having complex um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which you can't really be diagnosed with because it's not in the DSM-5. And so psychiatrists don't recognize it as a legitimate diagnosis yet, but hopefully that will change in years to come because the, I'll talk a little bit later about, you know, the difference between complex PTSD and PTSD if we get to that. But yeah, so complex PTSD um, and then kind of like subsequently, like from the PTSD, I experience, um, you know, anxiety. So I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, but I, I know that it's connected to the PTSD and specific triggers and then uh, major depression as well. But again, that's connected to the PTSD, the anxiety, which then turns into depression and hopelessness. Um, yeah. And uh, then recently I was diagnosed with ADHD, um, which has been really interesting for me to explore and just putting together the pieces, realizing that, wow, a lot of, the symptoms that I was experiencing were actually ADHD and what I thought ADHD was, was not, you know, what it actually was. And I was experiencing that too. So yeah. just, just this morning I was talking to my ADHD coach. I am yet, I'm waiting for the assessment. I'm still on the waiting list, but they, it's weird. It's like the, the wait list for the assessment is longer than the wait list to get a coach. So they started coaching me without even assessing me yet, <laughs> which is good though. But, and I'm finding that type of therapy really beneficial for whatever reason. Um, so it's helping a lot with my anxiety. I I've been diagnosed with chronic anxiety and, uh, it, yeah. I, and so she comes at it from an ADHD perspective dealing with my yeah. anxiety and it's been, well, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyway, this episode's yeah. about me now. Well, hey, you're <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, you were saying. Yeah, so um, 
so I guess you can kind of backtrack and just, yeah, look at how did I get this way? <laughs> and it all started um, way back um, at the beginning of my life when I was born. So I grew up feeling like I really didn't belong anywhere. Um, I was born in northern BC, Fort St. John, super north. And uh, my mother was 18 when she gave birth to me after a one night stand with a 29 year old guy. And, you know, she went through, um, you know, a dilemma of like, do I keep the baby? Do I adopt the baby out? My grandpa, her dad convinced her to keep me and decided that, you know, he would raise me. So I grew up with my grandparents till I was 12. And, you know, it was a little chaotic in the sense that um, <laughs> my grandparents came with their own, like, you know, addiction and mental health issues. Absolutely. And, um, you know, their, their relationship was quite unstable. Um, and then every other weekend after the age of two, my biological mom and my biological father um, wanted to, you know, have a part of my life. So, uh, and in my biological dad's case, you know, he, he was getting married. He met my stepmom and she really wanted me a part of their lives. So every other weekend I was in a different home. Um, I was either at my mom's house where there was a lot of, um, rage and, um, <laughs> neglect and, all sorts of, um, it was just wild for me because it was very different from my grandparents' house. Um, and then with my biological dad's side, when I would go there, um, it, it was just different. It's, it's hard to describe, but it, it didn't feel like home, right? Um, and then I would be, you know, some weekends uh, out at a Mennonite colony where my stepmom was from with her family and, um, you know, there, there was some creepy things that went on there that I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, and so here I was like a little kid and I would, you know, amp myself up for, okay, like, where am I going to go this weekend? And I would tell my grandparents, like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Don't make me go, please. And they didn't really understand what was going on and being a kid I, I didn't really have the words to describe it and I was scared to tell them what I was experiencing because I felt a lot of pressure from all adults in my life um that you know they needed me and so you know I, I couldn't really say like I'm scared of my step-grandpa um he tried to drag me into a cellar last time I was there and I narrowly escaped and I don't know what he wants to do with me. Like I'm terrified to go there. I couldn't say, um, last time I went to my mom's house, um, she threw a dictionary at me and screamed at me and called me a fucking idiot, you know, like, or that, you know, I watched her beat the daylights out of my little brother. Like I, I couldn't say these things or that, like, you know, I, I would watch my stepdad and my mom get in physical altercations or that my, my mom just like laid in bed all day and only came out to smoke weed on the front porch and listen to Alanis Morissette jagged little pill blasted through the stereo, you know? So there was a lot of different things going on there. 
And um, so after the age of 12, I ended up moving through, you know, like different family members' homes. Um, there was kind of this episode of time when I was 12, when I lived with my grandparents, where uh, my grandpa had started a grow up. He had this mechanical business, this automotive business um, on our property. Um, we lived on an acreage and he had this huge four bay garage and he decided to, you know, just leave half of that for his automotive business and take the other two bays and just like start this huge grow up um, with the help of um, my, my older sister and her boyfriend who, and I had actually just found out that I had an older sister. This was all new. <laughs> well, totally different story, but anyway. Same birth mom? Uh, no, same birth dad. Yeah. Oh, my biological okay. father had three different kids with three different women. And uh, so she kind of surfaced, you know, later on when I was probably around maybe 10 or 11. And um, so she she becomes best friends with my grandpa, weirdly. And Your they mom's start- dad. Yeah, my mom's dad. They have no relation <laughs> at all. They become best buddies. She actually moves in because she's having problems with her boyfriend. But then they start to grow up together. And then the plants get mites. And these mites get really out of hand. And then it seems that these mites, this, I'm just, this is just what I was told at age 12. So I don't, this sounds insane as I'm seeing myself <laughs> safe. But these mites infiltrated my grandparents and my sisters like bodies through their skin and started biting them everywhere. And then I guess they just started attacking their nervous systems and they started to go kind of insane. Like they, they became very paranoid, very frantic, very like highly anxious. And um, they were worried that I was going to get it. So they pulled me out of school for three months and um my Did they know what was that this was happening to them? They knew why they were this way? Well, you know, my grandpa, <laughs> he was an herbalist and really into alternative medicine. So, you know, and the internet was like this new thing that he was obsessed with. So he would research all this stuff and be like, I know what's going on. Like these mites, they're attacking our nervous systems and blah, blah, blah. And they're eating us and blah, blah, blah. And I was freaked out. I'm like 12 years old being like, what is going on? They started covering all the furniture with plastic and we weren't allowed to have anyone over. We weren't allowed to see anyone else, be close to anyone else. They were worried that it would be contagious. I would have to sit in the bathroom tub naked and freezing for hours covered in honey and then neem oil and then cobalt and this and that, you know, because well, we're trying different remedies I was having no symptoms, but they thought, oh, just in case they've, they've got in you and the eggs just haven't hashed, like, this is what we're going to do. And I was like, okay, okay. And um, so. It wasn't just dank weed. <laughs> I don't know. with their brain. I don't know, right? <laughs> and then my sister came up with a theory later on. She's like, Cass, I think there was like, um carbon monoxide poisoning like happening like in the house and i think that was making everyone crazy and i'm like honestly i don't know i don't know what reality was during that time and i couldn't tell you what the truth is about what happened there but in the end my grandparents um went bankrupt they lost everything they lost their business they lost their home and 
I remember, you know, them just sitting me down one day and saying, so, you know, we've lost everything and you need to figure out where you're going to live next because we're going to pack everything up into our motor home that we can fit in there. And then we're just going to live in our motor home in a junkyard in a hundred mile house in BC. So that's our plan. Where are you going to live? And I was like, what? Okay. All right. Uh, Mennonite colony. Yeah. Mennonite colony, right? Well, you know, that, that comes into play later, but oh. my, uh, I, I was scared to live with my mom because she was a terrifying person and my dad, I didn't really feel comfortable around. And they said that my aunt, you know, who lived in Kamloops, BC had agreed to have me move in and, and they would take care of me. And I was, thought my aunt was so cool. She was a hairdresser. Dad's side? Mom's side. Mom's side. Yeah. My mom's Dad. sister. And uh, yeah, she, she like, she used to be a model. She's this cool hairdresser. She was like, oh my God. Yeah. I want to live with my aunt. She's so cool. I thought she was very cool when I was younger. And um, so I pack up a suitcase of things for the summer. I'm going to go stay with my mom for the summer. And then in September, I'm going to move in with my aunt and cross the province to Kamloops, start at a new school. We packed everything that we owned up into wooden crates and we shipped them down to Abbotsford where my grandpa's nephew had a pulp mill and huge warehouse where we could store everything. I get halfway through the summer. My grandma calls me and she says, Cass, there's been a fire at the pulp mill and 95% of everything we owned has burned. Um, and so I'm like, oh shit. So I have nothing except for what I packed in my suitcase for the summer. And thankfully my mom, um, at age 12, kind of like at, I was 12, she, uh, forced me to work at Wendy's all summer. Um, she just told them that I was 14 and she was a supervisor there. And so I worked full time all summer and got to Kamloops in, in the fall and my aunt is like, yeah, we've made a makeshift bedroom for you in the basement. Um, anything you need, you're going to have to figure that out yourself. You're not our kid. So, and I was like, well, thank, thank God I worked all summer. Cause you know, it's one of those ancient houses, old character homes with like, you know, just cement musty old basement with tons of spiders. And they just put up this like wood paneling and there was this old rickety bed and that was all there was in there. And I had to buy my own bedding. I had to buy a dresser. I had to buy clothes. Um, I didn't have anything. And uh, yeah. And then I, I went through two years of just absolute verbal, emotional abuse and her treating me like I was Cinderella. I was there to look after her kids. I was there to clean her house. I was there to do it perfectly, never make a mistake, or else I was a waste of human life. And I just basically lived in this basement, um, just feeling totally isolated and oppressed by her. It, it was awful. And so eventually it got so bad. I started to get really depressed. I called my biological dad and I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, I had just kind of stayed up like most of the night, 
just being berated by her and her yelling at me and calling me names and telling me how I was going to amount to nothing. And, um, and I just called him in tears and I was like, you, you need to come get me. I can't, I can't spend another week in this house. And so he drove down and he picked me up. We just, I just put everything that I could fit into his car. And then we drove the 12 hours back to Fort St. John, BC. Did you have any, did you make any friends in, in any of these places? Yeah, I, I did have like three best friends in Kamloops. Um, and, and they were, they kind of kept me sane as much as possible while I was there. But, you know, I had a lot of restrictions on like when I could go out, where I could go. Um, I only think I only had like a few sleepovers in the two years that I lived there. I just, I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things. Um, and then, yeah, so here I am, like, back in Fort St. John. I'm living with my biological father and my stepmom. And I have a little brother that um, they parented together. And I started to experience, um, you know, sexual harassment um, from my biological father. Um, and that was also kind of the culture with his friends as well. Um I'm 14 years old at this point. And it was just sickening. It was, it was really sickening. It just made me feel like really, really repulsed. And uh, my stepmom wouldn't ever say anything or like do anything about it. And I would snap back and say like, no, please don't say that to me. Don't touch me. Don't, you know, and, and they just, he wouldn't listen. And um, I experienced, I ended up experiencing two years of sexual abuse, um, at the hands of my biological father while I was there. Um, and I was scared to tell anyone. Um, it's weird how people say, you know, like survivors of sexual abuse say like, oh, I just felt like it was my fault. And I can totally relate to that. And it's hard to explain, but it's just, I don't know. I, I think there was a fear that like, well, if I, if I say anything, where am I going to go? I'm 14 years old. Like, what am I going to do? Like, <laughs> I, where am I going to go now? You know? And, um, this and it was, was your last resort as it was. Yeah. And it was scary. And there's also this aspect of denial where this is horrific and it's shocking and you're in shock that it's happening to you. And so you deny it and you, you think, no, like that's not happening. That's not happening. Because if I admitted that that was happening to me, I would probably, completely mentally break down right and and what would the what would the consequences of that be what would the outfall of that look like it, it was too much and um so you know I at like age 16 I met my first boyfriend I kind of joined this like Jesus cult because I really wanted to feel a sense of family and safety I think and so I got really wrapped up in this like religious kind of environment met my first boyfriend there. What was the name of the cult? Do you mind me asking? <laughs> uh, shelter is what it was called. Ah, okay. Haven't heard of that one. Yeah. The shelter. The shelter. Yeah. So very appealing to me. I'm like, yes, this is where I need to be. Shelter and safe. And um, I started to get really depressed and despondent and just like not acting like myself. My boyfriend just said to me, look, um, if you don't tell me what's going on with you, like, I need you to at least call your biological mom 
and tell her, you need to tell someone, you need to tell an adult. I just, I have a feeling something bad's happening. And I don't know what it is, but I'm not going to hang out with you again until you do this. Thank God this, you know, like dumb 17 year old boy said that because that that's what I needed. And I called my mom and I just blurted it out. I just said, this is what's happening to me. And she freaked out. Um, she went through very similar things at the same age as me. And she knows what it feels like. She got with, on the next, sorry. With her dad? Not with her dad, but with um, her sister's boyfriend's, I don't know if he was a cousin or uncle or something, um, but an, an older an older man. And um, yeah, she got on the next Greyhound bus and she came by, she came to Fort St. John and she, um, as we were on the phone, she was like, don't go back there, go to your friend's house, stay at your best friend's house and, and don't leave until I get there. So she, she came and she helped me um, just kind of transition. And, and that was the one time I can say that my mom was really, she stepped up and she was my mom. So yeah, I ended up moving out into an apartment with my best friend and at 16 at 16 and i was already working at booster juice like part-time while i was going to high school but you know i asked okay can i get full-time hours so they put me on i think it was somewhere between 30 and 35 hours a week and you know i didn't have my driver's license i didn't have a car i was living in this apartment i was like walking to my high school every morning walking from high school to work after um, school and then working all night, working on the weekends, I was really busy and uh, just trying to keep myself afloat. And I uh, ended up getting engaged and married quite young um, to that boyfriend that I was seeing because, well, for one, in the Jesus cult, <laughs> you have to be married to you know have any kind of sexual relations or like have that kind of relationship. So. Um, that was a pressure on us, but then also, I think I was just really desperate to feel a part of his family and to feel like, you know, that stability. Um, but yeah, then that marriage lasted for a year and a half. Then he disclosed that he, you know, met someone else and had fallen in love with them and he wasn't planning on leaving them. And I was like, okay, bye. And, you know, we kind of left. Um, and that was right after the both of us had moved to Kamloops together. Um, so, you know, kind of ping pong back and forth from Kamloops to Fort St. John and back. And then I, you know, I was playing in a lot of bands around this time. I put myself through aesthetic school, but I was very broke. So I ended up homeless for a few months and kind of just couch surfed for a little bit and then ended up crashing in my grandparents' motorhome um, on the bad side of town. And uh, I was like, well, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm done aesthetic school. I have no money. I'm living in this old motorhome. Were they uh, in the motorhome too, still? No, at this point, they had gotten an apartment. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it, the motorhome was just parked in the parking lot of their apartment. It was pretty mm. sketchy, but I. Pizza uh, junkyard. Oh, hey, yeah, they had upgraded, right? So good for them. And. Um, yeah, and then I, I ended up, you know, moving to Alberta. 
and staying with a friend, an old friend from high school for a few weeks. And this was kind of my escape route out of this, um, <laughs> the motorhome. And, you know, at, at first it was really great. We were reconnecting. He was tons of fun. We were just having a blast together. Um, he had disclosed to me during that time, like, hey, you know, um, I'm in love with you and I've always been in love with you, like from the time we were 15. And I was like, oh, okay, um, I don't really feel the same way. And like, I hope we can just be friends because like, I love having you as a friend, you know? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. That's all good. Um, well, towards the end of my three week stay there, um, he drugged me one night and yeah. And you can guess what happened next. Um, I just have like a couple flashes of memory, like coming to while, um, you know, I was being sexually assaulted and the next he, morning, he really loved you. I guess so. Right. Like, Jesus. Yeah. Just sick. Just sick. And, but I woke up the next morning and I was like, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. I just packed my bag and I left and went and stayed with my stepdad in Canmore. And I was like, I didn't think about it. I did not think about it. And so, so he had a stepdad too. Your mom had remarried. Yeah. But they were split up. Well, okay, so <laughs> there's many layers. It's yeah. really complicated. I might need a diagram. Yeah, you only, yeah, yeah. I should, I should have prepared a diagram for you, but, um, but yeah, essentially, like, yeah, my mom remarried, or she got married to my stepdad uh, when I was four, I think, and then they had two boys together, so um, had two younger brothers uh, with them. And then around this time, like right when I, um, at, and I was age 22 um, at this time when I left Calgary, where I was staying with my friend and my friend, and I went uh, to stay with my stepdad. My stepdad um, was going through a hard time right about then because my mom had just left him for someone else. And my brother had just discovered a bunch of emails on the computer and realized that she had had multiple affairs with multiple men online for the last couple of years. So, and my youngest brother, he has autism. He's on the spectrum and he um, also has an intellectual disability. Um, and so it, it was really hard on him. And, and my stepdad is working full time and trying to, you know, keep a roof over their heads. So I moved in with them and just kind of helped out there for a while. But, but yeah, so essentially like I started to experience a lot of mental health issues after this, you know, I lived in Canmore for a few years and around the age of 24 is when probably maybe 23, 24, I started to experience um, panic attacks and I didn't know what was happening to me at first, went to the hospital and they said, you're having a panic attack. Um, and I started seeing a psychiatrist there. But then shortly after I moved to Australia with my then boyfriend and it just got worse. The anxiety started escalating, the depression started escalating. And I, you know, being in my early twenties, um, living in Canmore and living in Australia, I was just drowning everything in alcohol and, smoking weed. And, and then in Australia, I started doing all kinds of different drugs, you know, like I tried speed and I was doing LSD and MDMA and 
Um, but yeah, and I like I kind of thought well, maybe a geographical cure will help. I'll go to beautiful Australia, live by the beach, and well, there I was sitting on the beach, bawling my eyes out, being like, I hate my life, and not understanding why. What um, was your relationship with your boyfriend at that time? Was that okay? It could be turbulent at times. You know, we were best friends, and he was a lot of fun. Um, he had no insight into his his own trauma, my own trauma. Well, what was going on? You know, we're just dumb 25 year olds partying. And I think he did the best that he could with like what he knew, but we fought a lot and um, it just, it didn't end up being a healthy relationship where either of us could like really grow, you know, and, and heal. And yeah. So um, yeah, we, you know, we ended up back in, we ended up in Saskatchewan. That's where my boyfriend was from. And uh, so after like a year of travels in Australia and Southeast Asia, um, we were broke. We we're like, we can't afford to live in Canmore anymore. So here we are in, in Saskatchewan and land of living skies. <laughs> yeah. 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 It really is. The skies are beautiful here. Um, 25% of my audience is American. So I'm trying to oh, really? pump Saskatchewan's tires. Oh, yeah. 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 Saskatchewan beautiful, really beautiful place. Come really up beautiful. here and I don't know. Look at the sunset, I guess. I yeah. Dance in the fields or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what people do for fun here. I don't have to do that. Drink. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I Actually, guess. That, that kind of is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from my, from my perspective, my career, I do see a lot of that. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Same here. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so like, you know, and so things just continued to kind of haunt me, you know, like I started to experience a lot of symptoms of PTSD and um, anxiety, you know, was having panic attacks semi-regularly, bouts of depression and, and all these triggers just kept popping up. And then, you know, I ended up breaking up with that boyfriend and just being like, okay, like I just need to reset all my life. And so kind of tried to start over and thinking, okay, I'm going to get my life together. And still like triggers just kept popping up. My grandpa ended up getting really sick. Um, the one who raised me until I was 12. And um, I was, I had started dating my, my current husband by that point. So I'm now married um, and his name's Cole. And so Cole and I went to um, BC and we took care of my grandpa for four months and and then he passed away and that was really difficult because um, he was like the one adult that I ever really, really connected with and felt like love from really. Mm -hmm. And he didn't uh, get abuse from at all or. Yeah. You know, I mean, like he, he had his own you yeah, know, quirks right. yeah. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> yeah. but you know, like we, we were very close. And, um, and so then after that, I, I decided to go to school for mental health and addiction. So kind of like I said before, I'm like, that's what I need to do. I just need to learn more about mental health and then I'll be okay. And I can help other people and grandpa would be proud. And yeah, and I, I did really well in school. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, but I experienced, uh, I experienced sexual harassment from like an older male classmate during that time as well. Um, so that was really difficult. And then, you know, after I went through school, I, um, was seeing a counselor, the Saskatoon, through the Saskatoon Sexual Assault Center. And, and that was really helpful. Um, 
and I started to face like a lot of like the trauma that I had been through. I started to recognize like, oh yeah, this isn't normal. Like this really negatively impacted me and I have had no tools to process any of this stuff. And there's been just a lot of different stuff. Um, so she started to really help me with that. I started to work more specifically on like the trauma aspect of things. And so that's kind of where I was up until this last February, January, February. Um, I found out that my youngest brother, um, was in jail for, um, a sex crime in Ontario. So Hmm. this is one with with the learning disability and the autism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he'd been also like suffering with severe depression and suicidal ideation. And like, he, he has a really hard time of life, you know, his, his brain just doesn't um, understand the world the same way as most of us. And so he has a really hard time, you know, navigating, um, you know, like moral and social norms. Um, but my stepdad called me and said that, you know, my brother was being released from jail uh, in two weeks time and that he was essentially going to be homeless if I didn't take him in. And I was in a huge conundrum here because, of course, I have a lot of past sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And here my brother has been an abuser, a perpetrator of of this type of crime. And that was really difficult for me to wrap my mind around. But at the same time, I also really love my little brother and and I know him really well. And I and I know that. He has a hard time understanding things, you know, and he's mentally at a different age than he looks and all of these things. And I didn't want to see him become homeless. Um, I thought maybe if he has the support that he needs, that would be the best option. So I, we had him come live here and he stayed here for four months before um, one of my worst fears came to reality, which was that I had a complete mental breakdown of all mental breakdowns, the one that I had always feared might happen. And it happened at work in my workplace where I am a mental health professional in front of my supervisor and my colleagues. And it was awful and humiliating. Um, Why humiliating people? It happens. Yeah. And you know, and this is what I want to talk about is that like, I felt such a sense of shame and guilt, especially after, you know, like, um, my therapist and psychiatrist recommended that I take a three month leave from work. I felt so guilty for the first like two months. I was just riddled with guilt and shame and for having a breakdown. Yeah, for having a breakdown for, you know, I just, I think I was worried that there's that like imposter syndrome kind of voice in my head. Okay, now I've just proved to everyone, I'm not capable. I can't do this job. I'm too mentally unwell, you know, and, and that I'm more of a client than I am a helper. And like, you know, all of these internal fears that I had and beliefs that I had about myself just kind of came to the surface. Um and especially because I had not really, I, I hadn't heard of, I haven't been in the field that long, right? But I had never heard of like one of my colleagues having a mental breakdown, let alone at work 
or, you know, like dealing with this degree of trauma and dealing with like these types of things and, and just not being able to just keep working with their clients through it. Right. And uh, so I think there was some shame there where like, I took that to mean that, well, I'm, I just must be inadequate. Inadequate. Yes. Yes, exactly. But yeah. And then as I was like taking this time off work, um, this sense of dread started to really overwhelm me. And I really started to feel this immense amount of emotional pain rise up in me. And the anxiety got so intense that I was having a difficult time leaving my room for a chunk of time. Um, I was extremely depressed and I just started to wonder, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe I'm not meant to live. Like maybe this isn't (laughs) supposed to be happening. And I was having these episodes of, just these outrageous panic attacks and I'd end up like crying and then I'd try to like get a hold of my breath get some air because I'm starting to like get really dizzy and like my hands are starting to like become atrophy and I'm like I'm just losing it I'm like I need need to breathe and then as soon as I'd start to breathe I would just start screaming and it was like just these wild like out of body freak out sessions and I could not tell you what was happening I was like why is this happening to me it just got so bad to the point where one day I said to my partner my then fiance I was like I I need to go to the hospital I'm not okay I'm feeling really impulsive I'm feeling like I shouldn't be alive um I I don't see any way out of this like I just I think you need to take me to the hospital. And so he took me there and that was like the best decision that I could have ever made at that point. And now I hear like every day from clients that going to the hospital can be a traumatic experience in itself. And I absolutely see that there's, there is a whole other side of this too. And and it can be a very, very negative experience. Um, And Thankfully for me, uh, that was not my experience and going to emerge and telling them what I was experiencing was very helpful. I got connected to um, a medication that was helpful to me. Um, And by the way, I had tried like a whole parade of medications before that that were awful. Um, And I found a psychiatrist that was really helpful. Um, a psych nurse that was like, just helped me through some of the most difficult weeks of my life and, um, the types of therapies and therapists that like, I, I really needed to be engaging with and didn't really, you know, hadn't really tried in the past. So it, it ended up being a really, a really good thing for me. Well, good. Yeah. So that's good that that happened. Did, did you end up at the Dubai Center or was is it right in the hospital? Just an emerge there in the hospital. And and like, I don't know, my friend who's a psychiatrist is like, you know, it probably worked out so well because you went at like one in the afternoon versus like many of us come to our like complete end of our ropes at like, you know, midnight, three in the morning. 
And then it's like crazy busy and whatever. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. Um, well, it's good. I mean, yeah, I, it's nice to hear a positive story of someone going to the hospital and getting the help they need and, yeah. and, and, and that. So that's good. Yeah. So, so that was kind of like a huge shift for me where I, I started to make some strides in my recovery and engaging in like a somatic experiencing focused therapy was a huge game changer for me. Sorry, this was just this winter, you're saying? Just this spring, yeah. Just spring. This spring, okay, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm interested in the therapy part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, somatic experiencing was, has been, I still, I still go to that. That's been really helpful. Um, as well as ART, um, which is accelerated reprocessing therapy. I think I could be wrong about that, but it's, it's something like that. That's helpful. Um, and, and then I got my ADHD diagnosis and that was helpful to understand that aspect of things. Uh, so what, what are those therapies? So, um, somatic experiencing is, is really more about, um, the bodily experience, your nervous system, focusing on you know kind of like we were talking about before how with a lot of the like cbt more talk therapies um can definitely be helpful but for trauma only up to a point where you hit a wall and you go okay i know i know all the things yeah but you know like like i just described my body's freaking out like i'm losing my shit and i have no control over like what my brain's doing what my body's doing and it's terrifying. And so with somatic experiencing, um, it just brings you like into your body to navigate, okay, what is my body experiencing? Where is it experiencing that thing? And what is that connected to? Um, you know, what memory, what trauma, what age of me mm. is still very alive and conscious there and trying to take the wheel. Because what I really learned about with like complex PTSD is that a lot of these um, episodes that I was having where I was extremely triggered and I would lose control of my mental and physical state, that was essentially just a younger me coming out, maybe five-year-old me who, you know, um, went through this traumatic experience is now coming to the forefront and has taken the wheel and is like, we're fucked, you know? <laughs> and, and then all of the pain that I felt at age five, but that I didn't know how to understand or how to process or how to work through. And I didn't have any adult to help me do that. It's like all of that pain would come rushing in. And so during these episodes, I, I would just like writhe. It's like, I would just be laying there and it feels like an actual tornado is inside of me just, shredding my insides to pieces and I'm feeling this overwhelming um, intense pain that it's like I can't manage I can't manage and and that's where the suicidal thoughts come from as well right it's like I can't manage this pain I can't manage it it's mm -hmm. it's too much it's too much and so with somatic experiencing I've been able to really like go back and understand what is happening in my body and it takes trying to get into a safe place um a lot of sessions of somatic experiencing honestly especially at first 
we're just me and my therapist sitting there and she's just trying to help me feel safe in my own body because that alone is a huge step. I felt so disconnected. I was dissociated for weeks and weeks and weeks. Like I just felt numb. I just felt like I was floating around and like, like I wasn't me, you know? And so, yeah, you need to like, like have that, uh, be in that grounded state first to like be able to tap into that. But so that was kind of a defense mechanism for when stuff was happening as a child, but now you're doing it constantly as an adult when it's like, yeah. okay, I can switch this switch off, but it's never going off. So that's yeah. what the therapy was, was helping you with is, okay, let's yeah get out of this uh, survival mode, constant survival mode and feel safe. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. Exactly. And that is like, I cannot stress how much work that is. I'm not yeah. done. I'm in the middle of it all still. Like right. this is, this is just my life, you know, like, this is like what I have to do, but I'm thankful that I know what the work is now because for years I tried to do the work, well, but what's the work? What is it? Like, what am yeah. I supposed to be doing? Like, you know, it's a shot in the dark. And, and so, yeah, like it, it took me years to figure out what path I need to kind of go down. And I'll probably still discover like so many other layers of things I need to work through. And Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sober? Uh, no. So like, so here's the thing with me. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm a mental health and addictions counselor. I got into the addictions field because of how I can relate to a lot of the trauma that we see in people who are struggling with substance use disorder, because I so wholly understand what that feels like. And I understand why someone, um, well, I mean, there's a complex, you know, combination of factors that, that cause someone to be addicted. It's not just and always trauma um, necessarily, but it's a huge factor that is often very much overlooked or has been up until recently. Now we're talking about it more, right? And so I really wanted to be a part of that conversation of like bringing trauma into the forefront and understanding how that can affect how people function in life. Yeah, you can absolutely drink yourself to death because there's too much pain to contain in your body and you want to not remember the things that happened and you don't feel okay. So for an, for an addict, that's like I was saying how you get stuck in survival mode or defense mechanism mode. For them, that's using is constantly suppressing those feelings that they're they don't want to feel so they're yeah. constantly in that mode and so you help them turn off that switch which is i i mean i'm six years sober so i kind of and i worked in addiction so i don't want to put words in your mouth but yeah so no, help them oh, turn yeah. that switch off to to get yeah. out of defense mode but that doesn't stop the the trauma so then they have to do some trauma work and stuff right yeah. Is yeah. That okay. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we, even if you don't identify as having PTSD or like, and you know, we understand now that PTSD is so many more things than we used to think. It's not just, you know, watching a car accident, being through a car accident, going to war, right? It's like experiencing emotional neglect as a child can, can leave you with some complex traumas and developmental trauma, right? Like, we all have our 
our pain, we all have our things, right? And so whether or not someone identifies as like having trauma, there's things to work through. But but yeah, so that's what really drew me into the field as well as growing up with a lot of addiction. I didn't really talk too much in my, there's so many avenues I could go down with my own, you know, childhood growing up life story. But, um, but I watched, you know, many family members' lives be just shattered because of their addiction and and being under the care of some of those adults can be a little scary sometimes right and so I kind of I witnessed that firsthand these are people that I love these are my family members these are people that I adore um and no matter what their struggle is no matter what they've done it's like I I love them and so I wanted to bring that same love and compassion that I have for my family members who struggle with addiction into you know, addictions counseling so that I can share that with, with other people, other people's family members. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, it was interesting when you, you were, you said there were suicidal thoughts, but it, it wasn't, I want to kill myself. It was, I don't think I should be alive. Yeah. And, and uh, that's something that I think is important that a lot of people don't understand is suicidal thoughts aren't necessarily, I want to kill myself. It's, Everything yeah. from I just want to fall asleep and never wake up to, yeah, yeah I don't feel like I should be here yeah. I, to, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum, right? And yes, and, and a lot of people, yeah, don't understand yeah. that. It's so true. I think that's such an important point. Like <laughs> a million different people can experience suicidal thoughts a million different ways. We're all, we all come with our own story. That's 100% unique to us. And so then we're, of course, going to have our own very unique experience with suicidal thoughts or anxiety or depression. And there are most definitely some patterns that can be found and we can label it this, label it that. But it's like, yeah, it's no two people with suicidal thoughts, you know, have to look the same or like be experiencing the same thing. So it's... uh, and I, I think, you know, like one thing with um, complex PTSD and even like ADHD, um, if a person has that more impulsive trait where they can become quite impulsive, um, especially in a very like kind of negative mental state, that, that can be dangerous. So like I know um, like Pete Walker, um, he's a, um, a psychologist who has authored a book called um, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. And he talks about how, you know, most people with complex PTSD won't go through with like actually ending their lives, but it's more so that they just want to live life differently. It's like, I don't want to end my life. I just don't want to live life like this, Mm -hmm. you know? But then if you add some, some impulsive traits to that, I mean, there's, there is still a risk that someone could be feeling very impulsive in that moment. Maybe you've been spiraling for a long time. It's been a really rough go for the last year and you go, it's never going to change. There's no hope. Mm-hmm. I'm not with the impulsivity and, and yeah, it, it can be dangerous. So, yeah, Th- there's no worse feeling than that feeling of just being stuck where you are in life and hating where you are and just like seeing no way out and then having that, yeah, impulsive, impulsivity come at you and then be like, oh, uh, 
I'm actually kind of scared right now of my own self <laughs> or yeah. 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 It's yeah. It's, yep. It's that, that impulsivity um, is what scares me personally. I'm just like, I just need to do what I can to. Me too. Yeah. 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 Me too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, what's your, or do you have a relationship with your dad at all anymore? Or is it like, once you moved out of there, it was like, smell you later. Yeah. Um, I, well, well, I could do a whole nother, um, podcast episode just on the effects of sexual trauma, because I feel mm -hmm. like there's a lot that still needs to be talked about and understood about that. I, in my early twenties was kind of guilted back into a relationship with him and my stepmom. Mm, good old guilt. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just grew up being like, well, you know, you just, just got to do what they want you to do. And I just, it, it's taken, it's been a long journey of just like finding myself and like doing what I need to do um, for me, what's best for me. And so there was a handful of years there where I tried my best to engage with them again and it always felt awful and I am the queen of being able to fake it I'm awesome at just being like yeah everything's great like oh I'm having a blast it's fabulous but I would go home and I would go through weeks of anxiety panic attacks depression not okay and so yeah over the the last two years working with my Saskatoon sexual assault um, counselor. That has been a game changer for me because she's helped me to really, okay, for one, believe myself because it is so deeply programmed into me just to deny my own suffering and to not believe my own reality because gaslight yourself. I was, yeah. And I was gaslit so much growing up by so many different adults. And even with my biological father, you know, my stepmom basically just shoved it under the rug and was like, no, it's not a big deal. That's not a thing. No. And my biological dad's family, that was the same response. That didn't happen. You're lying. Right. And so I, it's hard for me to, it's like a daily practice to believe myself in every little different way in life I my first reaction is to deny my own experience and so she taught me that and she also taught me that um the shame that I was carrying around that was crushing me that left me to believe that I was worthless that I deserved all the bad things that were happening to me that I would never amount to anything that shame was never mine I was carrying someone else's shame um when I was sexually assaulted, that was those men unloading their shame onto me and trying to get me to carry it for them. And I did. I did. I thought that I should. And, and she helped me to realize that it's not even mine. I don't need mm -hmm. to carry it. Hmm. Interesting. I'm fine. Yeah. They're not fine. I'm, I'm okay. You know, like, yeah. Hmm. And, and how supportive was your workplace with, with all your, with this spring and, and, and your breakdown. Incredibly supportive. And so I have to say like, again, like a lot of like where I'm coming from right now with my experience through this, it comes from a place of privilege, you know? Um, and 
And so like, I acknowledge that, um, that I have the type of job where I can just take a leave of absence when I'm not okay. And I'm not going to lose my job and my manager's not going to hate me. And she's not going to, um, you know, guilt trip me and be, or be passive aggressive or like, like it's been amazing to have the support from all angles to have a loving, caring, supportive partner who helps me through my worst episodes, my worst days with so much patience and compassion with the friends that I have that they understand and they don't give up on me. You know, it's like, I very, very lucky. And every day I see how so many people that's not their experience. Right. And, um, that's very humbling to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was strange. I, I went to Pine Lodge for treatment. Yeah. It was a real eye opener. How, how much support I had really compared to other people. It was like, yeah. some people are going home back to their husbands who are going to beat the shit out of them. And they're hooked to meth while their spouse is here trying to get help. And like, you know what I mean? It was just like, Oh, okay. No, I'm, I am privileged and I should be very grateful and I yeah. should really, I have a responsibility to take this opportunity because not everybody gets it. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, there's so many like other compounding layers of like oppression and difficulty that I acknowledge that I don't deal with. So when I hear people saying like, well, I, I'm not that privileged. I <laughs> went through my own trauma. You know, like, oh God, I know. It's like, well, yeah, I know. And it's hard. Like you can't compare pain and you can't compare trauma, yeah. No, but you can compare privilege. I think it's okay. Yeah. You can compare it. It's okay. If you're privileged, it's okay. No, no one's, it's not, it's not a negative thing. So those, I, and then like, I hear that stuff too. People are like, oh, yeah, well, well, just got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I did it. You know, I was also this and this and yeah. had this happen to me. And it's like. No, no, you, no, no, you're privileged. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just... yeah. And, and people like that, I, I feel like there's just have a difficult time tapping into other people's experiences. Right. And imagining that other people experience different things from them. Um, yeah. Like I, I acknowledge that if I went through all of this trauma, like if I went through this whole life story, I just, I live the life of me, Cassie but, and I was indigenous, like this, I'd probably be telling you a very different story about my experience in, in a lot of different areas, you know? And um, yeah, I think that deserves a lot of attention. Yeah. The thing that I want people to understand the very most is that this experience of mental, mental disorders, mental struggles, whatever you want to call them, um, that is not my identity. And, and I don't think that's any, it should be anyone's identity. You know, um, it's a part of who I am. It's one part, it's one piece, but I used to feel so much shame and I was terrified of accepting the fact that, yeah, this is a part of me that like, these are the things that I struggle with. I, have complex PTSD, I, I have anxiety, I have depression, I, I experience, you know, these things. I ran from it 
for so long because I was so afraid that everyone would think that I wasn't capable, that I wasn't, you know, um, I, I guess I was afraid that they wouldn't see the other parts of me, that that's all, that they would just like zero in on that and that it would just taint, you know, their, their whole perspective on me. I was afraid that my colleagues would think that, you know, I was inadequate. I was afraid that my you know boyfriend's family would think that I'm crazy and like mentally unstable and like not someone that their son should be with. I was, you know, afraid of showing my friends too much of what I was going through because well, who wants to be friends with someone that's, you know, like, like that, you know? And, but so at this point in my healing journey where I'm at is that radical acceptance um, and it's a practice because those like critical thoughts still seep in, but that acceptance and self-compassion that, yeah, this is a part of me. It's a part of who I am, but it, it isn't who I am. It's not my identity. I feel less fragmented. I feel more whole, like it, that's allowed to be there. And yes, I accept that I have certain limitations and I have diff- maybe some different experiences that I go through um, and certain phases where I'm, I'm not going to be feeling great um, or I'm going to be having a panic attack or this or that. And that's okay. But there's this whole other part of me too. There's, there's other parts of me that are confident and compassionate and outgoing. And, you know, like it's, it's, we're complex, complex human beings and, and that's, it's okay. Thank you so much for that, Cassie. Uh, you are, I, I, I very much appreciate you being on the episode, but I also very much appreciate that you work in addictions and mental health and just being able to have your life experience help you help others. So thank you so much for this and keep up the good work and I hope you're feeling well. So yeah, thank you. Now next week I am talking with Bill. Uh, he's the coffin confessor guy and I'm telling you, it's a, he's got a wacky story, man. He's a very interesting dude. And there's even going to be a movie based on him. And I believe it's Marlon Wayans playing him. Uh, and I think there's also a, a reality TV show that's going to be coming out in Australia, kind of following him around doing his coffin confessing stuff. So, uh, yeah, super interesting guy. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much for sharing and commenting. And don't forget to make your beds and take your meds. Bye.